As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I am your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. The world is changing and it's making me very nervous. Every single time I look at the news, I get queasy. There are protests across the country and most of them are peaceful, but some of them are armed. California's on fire. The polar ice caps are melting. Massive hurricanes are becoming more frequent and more intense. And this year we ran out of names. We name our tropical storms and our hurricanes alphabetically, A through W. This year we started with Arthur and we ended with Wilfred. But now we just moved on to the Greek alphabet. We have tropical storms alpha and beta that are starting right now. Heat records are shattered all over the planet. And at home in America, Americans are being killed by the police. And some people are returning the violence on police officers who have committed no violence. And on top of all that is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is crippling the entire planet and changing world economies at such a rapid pace that it's really hard to comprehend. It's no help at all that our political leaders are at war with each other, and our government is attacking its own people. So there's no question that gun sales are through the roof and ammo shortages are across the country. A very large portion of America, maybe more than half of us, despise our own government. I worry about this every single day, and it's all very unsettling. My grandfather is Jimmy Carter. He was the 39th president of the United States. In my family, we talk about the ins and outs of government all the time. We talk about our government, we talk about foreign governments, and we talk about history. I'm obsessed with this stuff, and I think about parts of our government every single day. Because in our family, we talk about things like what makes a country strong, and what makes a country collapse. What are governments for? What do they actually do? How are citizens served by their government? Which government missteps are correctable and which ones are fatal? What leads to a government's success and what leads to it to oppress its own people? What actions lead to peace and what actions lead to war? What makes governments fail? So my hobby is government, but it's a bit of the family business. So I have certain expectations of our government by living as Jimmy Carter's grandson. You know, when he was a boy in high school, small little South Georgia town called Plains, population about 600 people, he had a school teacher named Miss Julia Coleman. And Miss Julia Coleman would tell her class that we must adjust to changing times while holding on to unchanging principles. Now that line stuck with my grandfather his entire life all the way up to today, just a week before his 96th birthday. He opened his inaugural address as president with that sentence. That phrase has literally guided him through his entire political career and all the work he's done afterwards. So that's why I'm calling my podcast Unchanging Principles. These are the ideals that my grandfather once instilled in our country for four years, and he's instilled in me over the past 36. And in America, not too long ago, Unchanging principles might just be called those ideals that calm down super hot political disagreements. Because as Americans, we used to have a saying that we agree on more things than we disagree. And that is no longer true. In the America I know, 
Being an American means having a commitment to the truth, a commitment to justice, a commitment to honesty and integrity and diversity and togetherness. We all take inspiration from the Constitution and the White House and the Statue of Liberty. That means reaching out to people within our own communities and other communities whenever they need help. You know, I'm, Americans I know are compassionate. Think about how the country responded to New York City on September 11, 2001. Or to New Orleans when Katrina flooded it 15 years ago. We all just stopped. And we paid attention. And our hearts and our effort and our money and some of us just went to go help these people for no other reason than they were Americans in need. Being an American means a commitment to democracy, to fairness, and to each other. My grandfather, of course, was a Democratic president, and I won't pretend that my politics don't lean that way. But I just attended a conference on democracy from a presentation called Choose Freedom from the George W. Bush Institute, and it was fantastic. And it was great because these are nonpartisan issues. These are American values. And we know that sometimes our marketing oversells our actions, but we've always understood this, just as much as we've always understood the goal. As my grandfather said in his opening inaugural address, America is a purely idealistic nation. We as Americans, ever since the very first sentence of the Constitution, have had a goal of forming a more perfect union. And now we've grown to realize that all of our ideals, all of it, comes from an unwavering commitment to human rights. So I love our history, and I'm fascinated by it. And I have a unique vantage point. I was born in 1984, and that was three years after my grandfather left the presidency. So throughout my entire life, I have been incredibly close to the most influential person that shaped our country and our world right before I was born. So I've always been interested in how we got here. And I think our story is fascinating. I think about a revolution breaking away from the British crown and us winning two world wars and putting a man on the moon and then becoming a beacon and a model for the world to follow for a fight for fairness and equality and democracy, justice, human rights. And we did all this by designing and installing a system of government that was supposed to be the best check ever conceived against tyrannical power. And now I look at the world and how we all feel about our country right now, and I wonder, well, how did we get here? I feel like we've lost a part of America. And I feel like we've lost our unchanging principles. So I would like to talk about them. But first, 1977 was a long time ago, and my grandfather did not start his political career by running for president. So I would like to reintroduce you to Jimmy Carter so you get an idea where I'm coming from. Jimmy Carter, just like everybody else, formed and reinforced his ideas and his vision through the times that he lived in. And he became president in a very tumultuous time in our country. After serving in the Georgia Senate and then as Georgia governor, he ran for office and won in 1976. In 1976, racial equality was an extremely hot and bitterly dividing topic. Because by that point, 1976, the Civil Rights Act was only 12 years old. And many Americans were pushing hard against it. In fact, in 1970 and 71, when my grandfather was running for governor, he ran against this segregationist named Lester Maddox. 
And Lester Maddox bragged on the campaign trail that he still refused to serve black customers at his restaurant in Atlanta. And he was just proud of his open defiance against the Civil Rights Act. But it was working for him politically. And right next door in Alabama, Governor George Wallace was standing up Jim Crow laws and calling for segregation forever. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Martin Luther King called Wallace the most dangerous racist in America. And of course, Dr. King was shot and assassinated on April 4th, 1968, for his leadership in the Civil Rights Movement. George Wallace, Lester Maddox, and Strom Thurmond, and many other leaders in the South were what were called Dixiecrat Democrats. They hated Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party for the Civil Rights Act. And Richard Nixon and Barry Goldwater, they saw these cracks in the Democratic Party, and they formulated a Southern strategy to bring over segregationists into the Republican Party. George Wallace was actually coordinating court disruptions with the Ku Klux Klan. But Nixon and Goldwater knew that being outwardly racist was going to promote a backlash in the North and the West. So he invented the dog whistle politics of states' rights and law and order. Of course, states' rights meant the right for states to ignore the Civil Rights Act, and law and order was barely even code for stopping protesters that were fed up with their own government. At the time, the black power movement was on the rise since the Civil Rights Act was passed by being ignored by large swaths of America. Protests for black power were erupting all over the country, and an entire generation of young people were forcefully protesting against being sent over to die in Vietnam. So the black power protest and the anti-war protest went together because the people were deeply upset at their government. And the protests were mostly peaceful, but obviously sometimes they weren't. And Richard Nixon seized on the nationwide protest and he won his election and re-election by anointing himself as the law and order candidate, scaring people about the protesters. Listen to this commercial from Richard Nixon's campaign. time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change, but in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. Now, as you know, Richard Nixon, the Law and Order Administration, was fabulously corrupt. Nixon and Agnew won the re-election campaign as Agnew was being investigated for corruption by U.S. Attorney George Bell. The vice president would respond to these damn lies by attacking the press, and then he claimed that the office of vice presidency made him immune from congressional investigations. 
Nixon attacked the New York Times as the lowest form of gutter politics, and it worked until a businessman named Lester Matz agreed to testify that his Baltimore engineering firm was kicking back 5% of his government contracts to then-Governor Spiro Agnew. And then Matz let it be known that he had evidence that he had brought $10,000 in cash to Agnew in the White House. So the vice president resigned his office on October 10, 1973, and Richard Nixon thanked him for his patriotism for not filling the headlines with the corruption any further. But the public was not buying it. It was becoming increasingly clear that Richard Nixon had coordinated the break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate complex from the Oval Office. Ten days after Agnew resigned on October 20th, Nixon ordered the Attorney General of the United States, his name is Elliot Richardson, to fire the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. His name was Archibald Cox. Richardson refused to do it, and he resigned. So Nixon picked the next in line, the deputy attorney general. His name was William Ruckelhaus to fire Cox. Well, he did refuse to do it, and he resigned. So then Nixon tapped the Justice Department Solicitor General, Robert Bork, to fire Cox, and he did. The New York Times and the Washington Post, they labeled this the Saturday Night Massacre. And then Archibald Cox went to the press, and he, he told the American people, whether ours shall continue to be a government of laws and not of men, is now for Congress and ultimately the American people to decide. The public reaction was swift and it was intensely negative. Just 10 days after the Saturday Night Massacre, the House began their impeachment investigation against Nixon. And then two days after that, on November 1st, a new special prosecutor named Leon Jaworski was appointed to investigate Watergate and now all the cover-up. By this point, November 1st, 1973, the country had been watching Nixon's Watergate scandal unfold for half a year. Earlier that year in May, the Senate Watergate committees televised their hearings and nearly three-quarters of the American households tuned in to watch it. And over the past six months, Nixon's approval rating tanked from starting out north of 70%, now he's around 25%. The biggest turning point in the entire scandal became this bombshell from White House aide Alexander Butterfield. He testified to the Senate in front of the TV cameras that Richard Nixon had been recording all of the conversations in the Oval Office since at least 1971. And Nixon refused to turn over the tapes to investigators, and he fought it for more than a year. Then on July 24th, the Supreme Court forced him to turn over the tapes, and four days later, Congress began their impeachment proceedings. So in just over two weeks after the Supreme Court forced his hand, Richard Nixon avoided impeachment by resigning the presidency on August 9th, 1974. Also on August 9, 1974, after Richard Nixon resigned, Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in as President of the United States. Nixon appointed Ford as the Vice President two months after Agnew had resigned in disgrace. Ford was previously the Republican House Minority Leader. So on August 9, 1974, the country now has a leader that they did not elect. And in less than a month after taking office, Gerald Ford pardons Richard Nixon. So faith in our nation's government was at an all-time low. Executive branch firings and resignations and dysfunction and just the brazen corruption and executive contempt for the rule of law defined the political atmosphere. And besides the exhausting scandals, there was the war in Vietnam finally coming to a close, but the country was also recovering from its first oil crisis. That ended just in March of 1974, and that had tripled the price of gasoline. Inflation was north of 9%. Nixon tried to control it by installing the wage and price controls, and Ford tried whirling out a whip inflation now lapel pin campaign, 
Literally, they're just lapel pin buttons that said win, W-I-N, whip inflation now, trying to encourage Americans to save more and spend their money more deliberately. Well, neither of those programs worked. The country was wounded, democracy was broken, and the scandals were just exhausting. So this was the political climate that my grandfather jumped right in the middle of to start his campaign to be president of the United States. Throughout my life, my grandfather told me that he always thought it was funny when politicians under pressure bowed out to spend more time with their family. His family was always involved in politics. When he was running for president, him, my grandmother Rosalind, his mother Lillian, my uncles Jack and Chip, and my dad Jeff were each in a different state campaigning 20 hours a day for my grandfather. And during the campaign, they were broke. They ran the campaign on public funding. Public funding comes from when you file your taxes. And the IRS, you know, Form 1040, has got a little checkbox. Do you donate your $2, $3, $5, whatever it is, to uh, candidates running for president? My grandfather, despite being a naval officer, state senator, and governor of Georgia, he ran as a peanut farmer of a small little town of Plains, Georgia, 683 people, and they mobilized around their campaign. Downtown Plains is literally just one long building. And in the upper left corner of that building, it says, Home of Jimmy Carter, our 39th president. That's about the only change that building has had since 1920. To your left is the Mr. Williams peanut mill, and behind that was the one that my grandparents were working at. And to your right is the pharmacy, and the building to the right by that is the post office. There's a train track running behind you. And then if you turn about to 4 o'clock, Almost on the tracks is the Jimmy Carter campaign headquarters. It does not look like it would work, not to achieve the highest political office available on the planet, but it did. And at the beginning, it was not lost on anybody that this campaign was damn near impossible. Still today, my grandparents have this political cartoon between their kitchen and the breakfast table of the devil running with a snowball and my grandfather behind him with a Carter for President sign on the poster. And the two men are watching the relay race, and one guy says to the other, my money's on the snowball. It's still funny. It's been there as long as I can remember. And the group from Plains that ran that campaign called themselves the Peanut Brigade. And they became a political force so powerful that they installed a peanut farmer from Sumter County, Georgia, into the White House. So after Richard Nixon's scandals and the seemingly bottomless corruption of government, and the lies and the doublespeak that defined Washington, my grandfather campaigned on a platform of honesty and integrity and a faith in government. He was a farmer. wasn't afraid to show his religious faith. He didn't use it as a weapon or a wedge. He was just proud of it. He promised that he would never lie to the American people. And he was elected as state senator in 1963 and then as governor in 1971. So at this point, he had been in government for 13 years, and he was still squeaky clean. That message was one of the most powerful endorsements of the era, and it was one of the most important things that my grandmother wanted the world to know about her husband. (laughs) And Jimmy has never had any hint of scandal in his personal or his public life. I really believe he can restore that honesty, integrity, openness, confidence in government that we so sorely need in our country today. I think you'll be a great person. So whether as a farmer or a naval officer or a small town leader or any of his previous jobs in government, my grandfather gained his reputation and respect from just digging in and doing the work. When he was a state senator, he used to sit next to the Capitol copy room 
and he would sit there and he didn't care who wrote it and he didn't worry if there was a D or an R next to the byline. He would read the bills and he would mark them up and decide whether or not he supported that bill becoming a law based on that bill's merits. Or if it needed to be changed, he would highlight what he thought needed to be changed. And then senators saw him doing the work and they would look to him to see how he would vote. So without specifically angling for that specific power, senators realized that Jimmy Carter knew what he was talking about and they would follow his lead when he voted. He took that small town do the work attitude to the campaign trail. He was running in the Democratic primary and he ran against Jerry Brown from California, Mo Udall from Arizona, Henry Jackson from Washington, Frank Church from Idaho, and George Wallace from Alabama. Now, Wallace could have probably taken the South. In fact, Wallace did win Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. But my grandfather was so opposite to George Wallace. He was much more likable. He was less abrasive, more humble. He was honest and down to earth, and he wasn't a racist. So a lot of people thought that the press just fell in love with him and installed him as the Democratic candidate. But the truth is, my grandfather was essentially unknown outside of Georgia. And he made fun of himself about it. Jimmy who? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy who? The secret was that my grandfather had a family member in five or six states at a time, hanging outside of sports arenas and churches and concerts and anywhere people were gathered. And they shook hands, they met face to face, they knocked on thousands of doors. And they talked about Jimmy Carter's vision for America. In the Carter Presidential Library, there's this great picture of my dad, He's a 1970s kid, about 25, long hair, talking into a PA system that's mounted on top of a van, just in the middle of the street. My grandfather would look for radio stations, and in the 70s, they were super easy to find because they were always at the bottom of a radio tower. So he would walk up to the radio tower, knock on the door, and he would usually be standing face-to-face with a DJ, only one in the room, and ask him, hey, would you like to interview a candidate for president of the United States? And it was an easy sell. He almost always got on. And if the DJ couldn't think of any questions to ask, my grandfather had a set of questions that he would just love the DJ to ask him. They did that all up and down the East Coast, and then Jimmy Carter took Iowa. So by the time the other Democratic candidates figured out they had to take this Georgia peanut farmer seriously, it was too late. In December of uh, 1974, there was a major headline on the editorial page of the Atlanta Constitution that said, Jimmy Carter is running for what? And what was the matter Now, obviously, the general election is a hard slog. More door knocks, more PA systems, a lot more campaign ads. And my grandfather tightened up his message and his presentation skills on the national stage. And he was quick. He spoke easily about his vision for America, and he put in the work. A lot of my family's greatest stories come from this time in the campaign. But there was one time when they just knew they got it. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. We've also seen 
a very serious uh, problem with the so-called Sonnenfeld document, which apparently Mr. Ford has just endorsed, which said that there's an organic linkage between the Eastern European countries and the Soviet Union. And I would like to see Mr. Ford convince the Polish Americans and the Czech Americans and the Hungarian Americans in this country that those countries don't live under the domination and supervision of the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain. The Soviet Union was occupying and dominating Eastern Europe. This was a serious error. And at the time, there were only two superpowers. It was the United States and then it was the USSR. So Ford came across clueless about our country's most powerful and pressing adversary. This debate still comes up every four years, and it seems that whenever this debate is revisited through the lens of history, its impact is minimized. In 2012, The Atlantic argued against the impact of a presidential debate in an article called The Fallacy of the Critical Debate. And in 2016, they came at it again with the subtle headline, The Myth of Gerald Ford's Fatal Soviet Domination Gaffe. Okay, yeah, whatever. My parents were both there off stage, and when my grandfather joined them after that debate in San Francisco, they knew they had it. It wasn't official yet, and they still had to complete the play, but everyone in the campaign just knew that Jimmy Carter was going to be the next president of the United States. The debate proved to America a number of things. It proved that the South Georgia peanut farmer, Jimmy Who, could go toe-to-toe with the current president of the United States and hold his own. It proved that Jimmy Carter knew what he was talking about, and it proved that he could translate how global issues affect Americans at home. It proved that, once again, doing the work was paying off. Forty days after Carter and Ford shared that debate stage in San Francisco, Jimmy Carter was elected president of the United States. Right after taking oath of office on this bitterly cold January 20th, 1977, my grandfather addressed the nation, outlining the guiding principles for the next chapter of the United States. And I join in the hope that when my time as your president has ended, people might say this about our nation, that we had remembered the words of Micah and renewed our search for humility, mercy, and justice, that we had torn down the barriers that separated those of different race and region and religion, and where there had been mistrust built unity with a respect for diversity, that we had found productive work for those able to perform it, that we had strengthened the American family, which is the basis of our society, that we had ensured respect for the law and equal treatment under the law for the weak and the powerful, for the rich and the poor, and that we had enabled our people to be proud of their own government once again. Absolutely none of this had anything to do with me. Now, my grandfather left office in January 1981, and I was born in May 1984. So, that means from my perspective, my grandfather was always the former president of the United States. And he wasn't retired, not by a long shot. In fact, just this year, at the sprightly young age of 95, he decided to leave the Carter Center, which is an organization that he founded after he left the White House. But I still talk to them regularly. I'm their grandchild. And I call Jimmy Carter my grandfather when I talk about him, but we don't call him that. I don't call him granddad or grandpa. To me, my brother, and my cousins, he's papa. And my grandmother is mom. 
So if you think it's confusing to have a family vacation with four kids and 12 grandkids and 13 great-grandkids and all the spouses with the matriarch of the family called mom, you're correct. My brother Jamie and I still start sentences like, I was talking to Rosa and mom about us staying at the pond house. Or, hey, mom wants some tea. No, not mom. Mom, mom. And if you think that's confusing, we have three Sarahs with an H. But I'm the fourth grandchild. Jack had Jason and Sarah first, and then Chip had James. And then my dad, Jeff, and Mom Annette had me. So I did a great job picking my parents. My grandparents are the unquestioned head of our family. I mean, for one, there's seniority, and that just requires a certain deference. But he's always made it a priority to bring our family together. Every year that I've been alive, my grandparents have brought us together for a family trip for New Year's. All of us. And then for us living in Atlanta, he would organize near-monthly family dinners for us at the Carter Center. And he just, he just loves his family, and of course we love him. We're all really close, but to introduce the obvious elephant in the room, he used to be president of the United States. And that's not necessarily what bring it all together, but he didn't become president of the United States by hearing people say no. So when he says it's time to show up, we show up. Now, being Jimmy Carter's grandson means that I get to spend time with him as a grandson. He's taught me how to woodwork, and he's taught me how to fish, and he's taught me how to tie fly fishing flies on his fly tying desk on his office in planes. In fact, the only time I can remember him being mad at me was over fly tying. He took me fly fishing in Pennsylvania at this beautiful, beautiful stream called Spruce Creek, and I'm not exactly the world's best angler, but one day I was doing particularly well, and he came over to see what I was doing, and he had just taught me how to tie the black ant and the Adam's fly. And I pulled my fly out of the water, and he saw the brown square that I had tied. I had tied a food pellet. And he accused me of cheating and unsportsmanlike conduct, but I disagree. The point of fly tying is to figure out what the fish are eating and to tie the fly and then catch a fish. And that's what I did. So one year, our family vacation was in Oaxaca, Mexico. And he saw me being an ass to my brother Jeremy. So he pulled me aside, and he told me that he thought I was being a maton. And I felt proud. And then he said, Matal means bully. And I was so embarrassed. I went and actually grabbed Connie Willis's doomsday book and sat in the corner of the hotel somewhere and read it cover to cover just to avoid seeing anybody. My grandfather had these expectations that everybody would be kind and that we wouldn't antagonize each other and that we would have enough respect for our family not to go and invent problems no matter how much my little brother deserved it. The other thing I remember about that trip is that on New Year's Eve, my cousin James paid this tiny local kid to buy out all the Zocalos cascarones or confetti eggs and pelt my cousin Chase in all evening, just pop out of nowhere and just smack him. And the kid and James thought it was a lot funnier than Jason did, and, and I thought it was hilarious, even if I did think that James was being a baton. But the other thing about being Jimmy Carter's grandson is being Jimmy Carter's grandson. I learned about this country through him. I mean, of course I did. How could I not? His vision for America and his hopes and his dreams and our humanity and my expectations of this country are through him. You know, Jimmy Carter's presidential inaugural address was the largest audience for Miss Julia Coleman's words to adapt to changing times while holding on to unchanging principles. But to me, I've heard it maybe conservatively a thousand times. This idea wasn't fluff for my grandfather's political speeches. It was the absolute foundation of his political career. My grandfather taught, through words and actions, about humility and mercy and fairness. 
and in his inaugural address, he spoke of equality between races and regions and religions. And he taught that the elimination of distrust comes from a mutual respect between peoples. And that respect comes from recognizing and embracing the nearly infinite diversity in our human existence. And then he sought for strengthening families. And he didn't necessarily mean the 1950s-era nuclear families, he just meant families, self-defined, by bonds formed from love and concern and loyalty and faith and caregiving. And he knows that countries built power through the laws they create and the agencies that enact them, but that power only gains legitimacy from the people through principles of fairness and equal treatment and mercy and a commitment to the truth and a commitment to justice. And all those core requirements come from an unwavering commitment to human rights. Now, I know this because I've watched his work and I've seen his accomplishments and I've studied his drive and I've talked to him about it for 36 years. Now, fast forward to today. And there's an election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we are living through the most politically polarizing time that engulfed this nation in maybe 50 years, maybe 160 years. Now, Donald Trump has endorsed, and he's amplifying, division based on race and based on political affiliation, but mostly based on opposition to him. And he seeks at every turn to divide us. He looks at our diversity in thought and in upbringing and in condition and in skin tone and age and education and whether or not we live in a red or a blue state and our hopes for a better future and our fears for our families. And he does not see the strength in our diversity. He sees this all as a weapon to divide us. And to Trump, fear and chaos are not deficits in his country that need to be soothed. To Trump, fear and chaos are wickedly potent tools for self-aggrandizement. They're levers for power. And these are the same levers pulled by dictators across the planet that my grandfather is president and through the more than 35 years of work at the Carter Center has worked tirelessly to defuse. And now they threaten the stability and the sanctuary of America. I mean, after all, in order to use fear as a weapon, you must first make the country fearful. Now, Biden is joined by a bipartisan chorus of Americans leaders in all levels of government, and some, though currently anonymously, within the current administration, in his fight for the soul of America. Now, the soul of America, to me, is a commitment to democracy, a commitment to truth, a commitment to fairness, to the rule of law, to the freedom to live your life without the fear that you're going to be endangered because of the color of your skin, or who you love, or who you want to pick as your leader. The soul of America is a country that balances the richness of our finances with the richness of community and our devotion to our country and to service and to family and to peace. And every one of these things are threatened by Donald Trump. And these are the same things that current and former officials in the Trump administration see threatened by Donald Trump. So if we are going to adapt to these changing times, we need to recognize, cherish, and hold on to our unchanging principles. Thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. Please email me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com and visit my website at unchangingprinciples.com. I just opened my Instagram account at unchangingprinciples, and I'm looking for fun stuff to post. So there, I've said Unchanging Principles five times in a row now. Please drop me a line and say hi, and let me know how you like the show. This is my first episode, and if you like it, please rate it and 
like it wherever you downloaded this podcast and then tell your friends. To learn more about the work of the foundation that my grandparents founded after the presidency, visit the Carter Center at cartercenter.org. I'm working on my next show on democracy, what democracy means to me and how it created America, and how we can protect it. It's next. There is a peaceful solution called the Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it. I know we can win it. So let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe it. And get ready to receive it. Now let's take back America.